0: I've been a Christian for about 23 years now, give or take five or six months. Uh, And one thing never ceases to amaze me, well, lots of things never cease to amaze me. Uh, But in particular, what amazes me is how the Bible is always relevant. Uh, I've read through the Bible many, many times now over those 23 years. And I think when I first became a Christian, I sort of thought, well, I'll read the Bible once and then I'll know everything there is to know about following Jesus. And that'll be good, I can move on to something else. Uh, But what I have discovered over these 23 years is that as I read the Bible over and over and over again, it's always relevant. And I'm amazed how many times in my Bible reading, when I sit and read the Bible in the morning, I'm amazed how many times I just happen to come up to a passage that just speaks to the specific situation I'm facing in that particular day or something I'm dealing with at that particular time. And sometimes it can seem sort of magical. I don't know if you have this experience, but it can seem sort of magical, like God has just made it happen on that day, given me the passage I need on that particular day. And God can do that. But actually, I think generally it's less magical and more a reflection of just how relevant all of God's Word is. Uh, When we read God's Word with the right attitude, when we come to it in faith and we're expecting it to speak to us, We actually find it's always relevant. And more than that, I think one of the reasons we think, oh, gee, isn't it amazing that passage has come up when I'm facing this particular situation? Is what actually happens is we let the Bible shape what we think is relevant in our particular day or in our life. And the Bible actually impacts us in that way. But sometimes in God's providence, these funny moments do happen, uh, like tonight. I plan the preaching program out a year in advance, so uh, last November I plan out the preaching program, so we've been going to be preaching on 2 Corinthians 8 since about 30 November last year, Uh, and then a few weeks ago I sat down with the wardens, Keith and Rob and Helene from our 1030 congregation, and uh, we said we need to do a budget update for the middle of the year and explain to people the shortfall and that sort of thing, and the only Sunday we could come up with as we looked in the diary was the 7th of August, because we had Howard and Michelle with us last week we didn't want to you know steal their thunder and all that sort of thing so anyway and then on Monday I open up my Bible to prepare for the sermon and having just had the wardens tell us about our need for money the passage we're dealing with is 2 Corinthians 8 probably the key passage for thinking about giving and generosity and all those things who says God is not in control of all things and who says God doesn't have a sense of humor well uh, let's get this out of the way straight away today's passage is about money It's about how we use our money and it's especially about how we give our money and money is one of those taboos, isn't it? It's amazing as I preached on this this morning, I looked out in the congregation and there for some reason on this particular day are all these people who have never come to our church before and I think they think we talk about money every week, that's all I preach on because some churches are like that Uh, and money is one of those taboos and people don't need much of an excuse to say well all the church wants is my money. Uh, But here's the reality, as a church we've got to talk about money because despite the fact we're applying for a government grant towards our building, uh, the government doesn't give us any money to do any of the things we do. In fact more than that, people hate the idea that the government might give a church money uh, to do ministry and tell people about Jesus. As a minister I've got to talk about money, just part of what we have to do because the only way we can do what we can do is through the generosity of our members. But when we do, someone will say, oh here they are talking about money again and all they ever talk about is money and they don't go back and listen to my sermons for the last six months and listen to all the other things we talk about. It's funny though, sometimes we can be too quick to deny it when people say all they ever talk about is money uh, because I think Jesus would say to someone who said that to him, well do you know what, I do want your money. I don't think Jesus would apologize, he certainly didn't in the Gospels because Jesus said actually, I want all of your life. If you know me and you know what I have done for you, I want every decision you make to be about honoring me as Lord. Whether it's about how you use your time, whether it's what job you do, whether it's about relationships you're in, whether it's about how you use your money, I want every decision you make to honor me as Lord. It's interesting, when you read the Gospels, just this week, go and just read one of them, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, and you'll be amazed how much Jesus talks about money and possessions, especially when he wants to talk about genuine repentance and faith. So as you read through the Gospels, whenever Jesus wants to say to someone, are you really going to follow me? He starts talking to them about money or how they use their possessions. And that's because Jesus knew that real conversion hits the hip pocket. That's what it does. People sometimes say, I've heard many preachers say it, I've probably said it here and you can tell me I'm contradicting myself. But anyway, people often say the first part of the body that's converted is the head, the brain, and the last part that's converted is the hip pocket, the wallet. And people nod and say, yep, yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. You know, I get it in my head and then only later did it impact my wallet. But I actually think it's not true. I think Jesus would say, no, if it hasn't hit your wallet if it hasn't hit your attitude to things of this world to money and possessions then you haven't actually got it in your head you haven't actually understood the gospel you you don't yet really know Jesus you should go and do Christianity explained again and come to know me because if you're truly converted it will impact the way you spend your money what that does more than anything else how we spend our money and our possessions shows the true state of our heart And it actually shows whether we really believe that we live for eternity, for heaven, for Jesus' return, or whether we live for this world. Because if you live for this world, you'll hold on to your money, and you'll hold on to your possessions, and that's what you'll value. If you live for eternity, you'll hang very loosely to your money and to your possessions. But I find often when we talk about money and generosity and those sort of things, people are happy to talk in theory. People don't mind when you talk about money in general if you just say we need to be generous and people can then say and leave it up to me to decide how I can be generous. People are happy talking about it in theory but what's wonderful in 2 Corinthians 8 this week and 2 Corinthians 9 next week the two sort of go together over these two weeks is they make us think in real hard practical terms. They actually make us think about putting numbers on a page Money in a plate, that sort of thing it 's funny. I once heard a story of a minister who was working in a rural area i don 't actually think it 's true, but anyway, I heard the story and he was talking to a parishioner who owned a small farm, small farm, few animals, that sort of thing. and so he said to them, You know if you had a hundred horses, do you think you 'd be willing to sell twenty of them and give the money to support gospel work And the farmer said, yes i would i 'm absolutely committed to Jesus." I'm committed to the gospel I'm committed to our church I'd happily sell if I I had 100 I'd happily sell 20 horses and give it to the gospel and they said well if you had 100 cows would you consider selling 20 of them and giving the, the money to gospel work and he said yeah if I had 100 cows I would be first there with the money I would have sold 20 and I'd be there and giving it to you giving it to the work of the gospel and then the minister said what about if you had 10 pigs would you be willing to sell two of them and give the work to, the money to support gospel work and the farmer went silent and he said well hang on pastor you know I've actually got 10 pigs see it's different when it's reality as opposed to theory and lots of us are like that we think yeah if I was wealthy I'd be generous and we don't realize just how wealthy we are and talking about money can be like that it can bring that out in us it's all right talking in generalities it's all right talking about principles but when it becomes reality we're actually asked to put our money up and move it from our bank account to somewhere else, then we get uncomfortable and we realise just how closely we hold our money. And that is not just a modern phenomenon. Don't just think, oh, we modern Christians are, are sinful, unlike the ancient ones. It was exactly the problem Paul was talking about to the Corinthians in these chapters. In the 40s and 50s of the first century, that is, so 2,000 years ago, Paul was organising a massive collection from all the Gentile churches that he had planted, all around modern-day Turkey and Greece. And he was going around, he was collecting money from those churches to take back to support the Jewish church in Jerusalem that was doing it tough. And it was a way of saying, in a way, thank you for sharing the gospel with us. It was a way of showing love and generosity to the church that had started it all. And so he was going around collecting this money. And Corinth was a really rich city the parallels between Corinth then and Sydney today are absolutely astounding. It was a really rich city and the Christians there were much better off than just about any other Christians in the world at that time. And so a couple of years earlier when Paul had raised it with them, they had given in principle agreement to the idea of generously supporting this collection in principle. But now the time was coming to move from in principle in theory support to actual giving. And Paul had heard through the grapevine that now the Corinthian Christians were maybe balking a little bit and coming up with reasons why they shouldn't give to support this collection. So that's what chapter 8 is about. It's a call to Christian generosity. So Paul spurs them on in two ways and I've put two headings on your outline, open up your outline, have a look, you want to follow along there. He spurs them on with a negative motivation and a positive motivation. So we'll start with the negative. It's in verses 1 to 4 and what he does is he does something that makes us feel incredibly uncomfortable. He tells them what other people are giving. That's how he motivates them and what he particularly does is he tells tells them how much the much poorer Macedonian Christians are giving. So look at verse 1. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God granted to the churches of Macedonia. So he's saying I want you to know about the generosity of the churches up in Macedonia. Macedonia was a couple hundred kilometers up to the north in the north of Greece. Uh, The Philippians who you read about in your New Testament, the Thessalonians who you read about, they were from Macedonia and they were so poor that Paul didn't actually expect them to give anything. It was enough that they supported their own church. It was enough that they supported the people who ministered amongst them in their city. And he says, though, he says, even though he didn't expect it of them, they begged him for the opportunity to be generous. Look at chapter 8, verse 4. It says, they begged us insistently for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. Isn't that a wonderful picture? of gospel-hearted generosity. Once in a while, when people become Christians here amongst us, and we have the wonderful blessing of seeing people come to Christ regularly, once in a while, in discipling them, I'm so, I think, I don't want to bring up money at all. You know, I don't want to sort of make it think that, that we're after their money. Or so. I just want them to come to know Jesus. And, and then once in a while, though, someone who's become a Christian then says to me, well, how do I give? And they actually equivalent of, beg for the opportunity to be generous. It's the most wonderful thing when you see someone, not give because they're guilted into it, not give because they see it as an obligation, but just have this joy in being generous because they know the gospel and they know Jesus. In fact, he says they were actually imprudent in what they gave. They gave more than they could afford. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, during a severe testing by affliction... Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. I testify that on their own according to their ability and beyond their ability they begged us for the privilege of giving. I just imagine up in Macedonia these people coming and giving money and their non-Christian friends and family saying to them are you stupid? I mean seriously you haven't paid off your house yet you don't even have a real full-time job and yet you're giving keep it for yourself I can even imagine their Christian parents saying it to them and this wasn't hang on you won't be able to have an overseas holiday this year this was you won't be able to put new clothes on your children this year this was you will have to go without things you probably need this year the generosity Paul is talking about here is generosity to the point of real personal cost now why does Paul raise the Macedonians generosity with the Corinthians? Why isn't this to the in the letter to the Philippians or in the letter to the Thessalonians? It'd be a bit like me coming to you tonight and say you know we're behind budget let me tell you about the church in Hornsby or the church in Newcastle. I don't know anything about the church in Newcastle or Hornsby whether they are ahead of budget or behind budget but so why does he do it? Well there is absolutely no subtlety at all. He is shaming them into action that's what he's doing look down at verse 8 he says I am not saying this as a command rather by means of the diligence of others I am testing the genuineness of your love see here are these Macedonian Christians who have nothing begging for the chance to give more than they can afford and he's saying so what are you Corinthians who are the wealthiest people on this earth what are you going to do with your wealth when you compare yourself to the Macedonians. We struggle with this, I think. We struggle with what Paul is doing here. How can he use shame as a motivator? But he has no problem at all. Because what he's doing is he's saying, here is a wonderful example of generosity. I'll now let your consciences decide what you're going to do with it. I've thought about whether I should say this all week, but I think I should. Sometimes, it is right and appropriate for us as Christians to feel ashamed. Sometimes it is right for us as Christians to feel ashamed. It's right to feel ashamed if you are a Christian and you are not generous. It's right to feel ashamed. If you earn a healthy income and you are not generous with it, it is right to be ashamed. If a Christian has a good job and is not giving generously, they should feel ashamed about it. It's right to be ashamed if we are a Christian and we hoard our wealth and hoard our possessions instead of using it as a blessing for the spread of the gospel and the care of others. But going back to last week's passage, which is so important that Troy looked at at with us last week, we hope that shame is in the form of what Paul called godly grief. Do you remember he talked about that last week? godly grief not worldly grief you see there's there's a shame worldly grief that responds in self-righteous indignation and well it's my money and I'll do what I want with it and how dare he tell me I should be ashamed about the way I'm using it that's worldly grief and leads to death but there is another thing that is godly grief that says my conscience has been pricked and now I'm going to repent and I'm going to seek to be generous because I know Jesus that is the shame Paul is hoping might spring up in the Corinthian church well that's the negative motivator to generous giving now Paul moves on to a far more wonderful wonderful motivation a positive motivation which is the example of Jesus look at verse 9 he says For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ though he was rich for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich isn't that one of the great verses of the Bible? Just look at it again. If you sort of zoned out as I read it out, look at it again. I'm going to read it again. If you're an underliner, underline it. Not in the church Bibles. <laughs> Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. He, the, one, the Macedonians' example is wonderful. It's wonderful when you have an example from Christian brothers and sisters of self-sacrificial generosity. But what better example do we need than the example of what Jesus has done for us? Jesus was richer than we can ever imagine. He sat in the heavens with his father. Jesus Christ is in very nature God. And yet he said, I am willing to give it all up and come down and live as a man here amongst you and not just any man but a poor and humble man in a backwater of the world and then he said not just that I am willing to die and not just any death the most horrible death that humanity had come up with to that time and even not just die but in his death take the punishment of God for our sin upon himself and he did all of that he became as poor as poor can be so that we would be rich not in the sense of earthly prosperity and wealth, and preachers who tell you that Jesus wants you to be rich in that way are lying to you, and you should run as far away from them as you can get. No, Jesus says, those things rust and fade away. I have become poor so that you might become far more rich than money can buy. I have become poor so that you can have every spiritual blessing in me. You can know the wonderful truth that you're forgiven for your sins and that you will live forever. With your Lord into eternity. That is what Jesus has done for us. And knowing that, I pray you do know that. Knowing what Jesus has done for us, the Apostle Paul says that must change our attitude to our earthly wealth. Mustn't it? One person nodded there. Mustn't it? It must. If you don't agree, go and do Christianity Explained and learn about jesus and what he's done for you it must change our attitude or we haven't understood it generosity is the mark of christ so it should be the mark of a christian a follower of christ see paul says to these early christians you reckon you excel in your faith you reckon you excel in your love i'll tell you what i want you to excel in i want you to excel in your generosity That's what the Macedonian Christians did and they begged for the chance to give. Now if we were there at that time you'd probably almost hear the cogs turning in the mind of the Corinthians and they might be in your mind as well and I hear this question a lot actually. But if I give too generously, if we give self-sacrificially like those Macedonians then I'll be poor and I'll need other people's charity. So I can't be too generous I love how people ask that question. I've still never met a person who's given away so much that they are impoverished. I haven't met this theoretical person who asked that question. But it is, there's a legitimacy to it. How does self-sacrificial generosity work? Well, sort of, Paul sort of anticipates our questions and their questions and gives a couple of answers. The first point is, generosity is not some flat amount. It's not X dollars or X percent generosity is determined on the basis of what you have and on your circumstances so that's his point in verse 12 look with me He says for if the eagerness is there it is acceptable according to what one has not according to what he does not have his point is are you eager to be generous that's what matters are you eager to be generous well then according to how god has blessed you be generous So if you are a university student who earns $10 a week, it's very hard for you to give a lot of money to be generous to others. If you live at home and you're a school student, you're in a different circumstance to a person who lives on their own and earns six-figure incomes. A family with eight kids cannot give as much as a family with one kid. A family with two incomes can give more than a family with one income it's not some flat thing that says here's generosity his point is be eager to be generous according to the circumstances you are in sometimes people come to me after sermons like this one and it's always the really godly people and they say i want to give more but i just don't have very much and to that person i say my sermon was not for you it was for the other 130 people here no you just keep giving like the woman in the, in the story Jesus tells who gave her coin and Jesus says she's more generous than the other people around her. But that is not most of us. But the point is you can only be generous according to your situation. His second answer is there in verses 13 and 14. I'll read it out. He says, it's not that there may be relief for others and hardship for you but it is a question of equality. At the present time your surplus is available for their need. So their abundance may also become available for our need. So there may be equality. Paul's point is, it's not like we're going to pull our resources and become socialist and everyone gets the same amount. But at the moment, you're more blessed. So you can be more generous. And if it gets to a point where you are not as blessed and can't be as generous, then pray that other people will be generous at that point and alleviate the shortfall there. But this is really, really important. A principle for Paul is a quality among Christians. A Christian should never be happy to allow a Christian brother or sister to go without when we have excess. As I say, it's not calling for a socialist system where everyone has to have exactly the same standard of living and everyone puts their money in a pot and we divide it equally amongst the whole church. His point is, if there are brothers and sisters in need and you have more than you need, you be more generous. That's his point. It's not a problem if people have different standards of living but it's an indictment on a church if there are people going without basic needs while other people have money to spare to go on every holiday they want to go on and upgrade their car or whatever it is they want to do. Now if we come back to the passage, come back with me, and to verse 16, the last section from verses 16 to 24 goes through all these detailed precautions they were taking as they raised this money. And I came up here onto the front area here as Rob was reading it out and I noticed people flagging during that part of the Bible reading and that's okay because it is a bit boring. Uh, What he's describing is all the checks and balances he put into place to assure people that their money was getting to where he said it was going and it all because you've all heard who there was a famous sportsman I won't name him because this goes on the internet you know has a foundation for charity and then they discovered last year 80% of it was going towards the boardroom lunches and everything, you know, and none of it was actually going to the charities. People want to know if I'm giving generously that it's going to what I claim it's going to. And it all boils down to a basic principle which he outlines in verse 21. He says, for we are making provision for what is right, not only before the Lord but also before men. This is a great principle to live by in general. Do what is right in the eyes of God and as far as possible, be seen to do what is right in the eyes of men. And it's especially important where money is concerned. It's amazing how money can tempt people. Not a a month goes by when there isn't a story of some church in the world where a minister has quit in disgrace or been sacked in disgrace because he has taken money from the congregation. Satan looks for opportunity to split churches and destroy ministries by people messing around with money. It only needs a hint of impropriety, not even a true hint for people to say I don't want anything to do with Jesus anymore. So that's why in light of this passage we have clear rules and policies here at church. It's one of the reasons we encourage electronic giving because we don't want people to have to handle large quantities of cash. It's one of the reasons we encourage people to give electronically, so there's no opportunity for there to even be a hint of impropriety. It's one of the reasons I don't let any of our staff team count the money. So I don't want you to see me touching. I shouldn't see the money. I don't touch the money. I don't know what anyone gives, so that there's no suggestion of wrong behaviour. When we count the money, there are always two people who count it. See, we put all those rules in place, not because I think the people who do that job can't be trusted, in fact, I think they're very trustworthy people. I'm looking at one, he's smiling at me right at the back now. But it's not for that reason. It's so that there is not even a hint of impropriety, not even a hint that anything is wrong. But the reason Paul sets all this out here and sets these, frankly, quite boring details, is he doesn't want the Corinthians to have any excuse not to give. And you see that in verse 24. He said I've set out all this stuff and then he says therefore show them proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you. He says, I don't want you to have any reason, I don't want you to say to me oh we would have given but we couldn't trust those people taking the money. He said well you give us two people to take the money to Jerusalem. He wants them to prove to him and to the other churches that he's been right in boasting about how loving and godly and generous the Christians in Corinth are. Now this topic goes on into chapter 9, we're going to look at that next Sunday night and especially he turns to the question of what does generosity look like? The question of how much is what he looks at next week and he also talks about this wonderful idea of what it means that we will, that we reap according to how we sow. So we're going to think about that next week. But I thought I'd finish today by talking about who we give to, I'm sort of just splitting it up over the two weeks of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. This chapter was about a very specific collection back in the ancient world where they were giving money to support another church but we can take the principles from that and apply it to all areas of giving I think so as we finish this week I want to briefly look at what are the areas where we are called to give generously so take out your outline I've put some bible verses on there and I've put some headings on there three headings and the first is of course to support ministry in our own church That's the first area where we're called to give generously. So Galatians chapter 6 verse 6, The one who is taught the message must share all his good things with the teacher. The principle in the New Testament is that if someone works to teach you the Scriptures, you should provide for them to live. That's the principle of the New Testament. That's the principle behind our giving here to support our staff and ministry team. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 11 to 14 He says, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. Or again, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, the elders who are good leaders should be considered worthy of an ample honorarium. I like that one. Uh, I sort of think, well, what about the elders who are not good leaders? Are they just worthy of a not ample honorarium? But anyway... He then says, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. His point is, the people who over you in the Lord work hard at teaching you the scriptures and seeking to grow you as a disciples are owed a living by the community, the church in which they teach. And then I love verse 18. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain and the worker is worthy of his wages. I always think it's appropriate that it's me preaching on when I read that out not Troy uh, or Kevin because they don't look quite as much like an ox as I do it's it's hard to visualize an ox treading out the grain with someone who's stick thin like Troy but with me it's easier to see what it's talking about but it's all very clear-cut we have an obligation as Christian believers to support our own church ministry in fact that really should be the first use of our money Every week or every month we set aside what we have decided to give as the first fruits so to speak. But then secondly, like Paul is encouraged encouraging here from the Corinthians, God wants us to have a bigger picture than our local church. God wants us to support the gospel going to the nations. Do you know the thing that I am most proud of, hopefully in a godly sense of pride, the thing that I am most proud of here at St George North is the way, even though it puts enormous pressure on our own budget and our own growth as a church here, is the sheer number of people and ministries I know you support beyond your own church. And that is the thing I think I am most proud about over the last 10 years as we've grown here at St George North, even though it's one of the reasons we fall behind budget is the fact that so many missionaries, so many people have gone out into ministry and people here support them. That's so wonderful. Now we support amongst us lots of people. As a church we can't present the needs of everyone to the church here week in, week out. So we specifically encourage people to support a few, in particular CMS. And we met Howard and Michelle last week. Later in the year I'm hoping we might be able to support Luther and Lenore as they go and plant their church out at Leppington. Uh, Now it's important to understand that giving is over and above our obligation to our own church. I think sometimes Christians sort of think oh look that's an exciting new ministry what I'll do is I'll reallocate my giving from my church to support this really cool ministry in the Philippines. That's robbing Peter to pay Paul. No 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 we, we do both. We support our own church. And then over and above that, we give to support Christian mission. I think this is one of the hardest things because there are so many good causes to support, aren't there? And, and if, you are, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you can get a letter every week from a worthy organisational person to support in ministry. And it's hard to work out who we should support. And I think one difficulty in this area is that people rightly keep this sort of thing quiet because they don't want to be proud about their generosity. What that means is we don't have any models to tell us, well, how do I work out what I should support and how much I should give and all those sort of things. See, when when I'm doing a talk on Bible reading, I go and I find someone who I know is faithful in their quiet times. I get them up the front and I interview them. And generally they're willing to be interviewed. When I give a talk on prayer, I find someone I know who's very faithful in their prayer life and I get them up the front and I interview them about their prayer. But when I give a talk on giving, I go and say to someone, I think you might be generous. Are you willing to come and talk? about?" it? No. And there's good reasons for that. They don't want to shout from the rooftops about their, their generosity. They don't want to be proud about it. But what that means is it is hard to get a model of what generosity looks like. So what I'm going to do tonight is do something I only do very rarely. I'm going to tell you how Victoria and I make our decisions about who and what we support. Not for the purpose that Paul told them about the Macedonians. Please get that clear. I'm not attempting to shame anyone. I just want to give you an example because I know when I was a young Christian, I've told you this before, I was earning a very good wage when I first left university and I was putting 20 bucks in each week because I thought that's really generous. I thought you know because back then ATMs gave you 20s and 10s so 20s was the big note <laughs> and then someone said to me seriously they had the courage to say seriously that's all you give someone like you with the income you're on and I but I would it wasn't that I didn't want to be I didn't not desire to be generous but I just had no idea I didn't come from a Christian family I didn't know what it looked like to be generous with your money so I'm going to just tell you what Victoria and I do. We give 10% of our stipend back to the church straight away. We don't even see it. And we see that as almost like a tax payment. Not in the sense that we don't want to do it, uh, <laughs> not in a negative way, but in the sense that we don't actually see it as an act of generosity. We just say, no, 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 that's not even our money. We're just doing that before we even begin. So it doesn't even, it just sort of comes in, and it's interesting, when you, when you work for the church, it's a funny sort of situation. The church pays us, and then the next day, the money goes back into the church bank account. Uh, and that money is just never ours. We give it without thinking about it. And then, with the rest of our income, we try to be generous beyond St. George North. Now, the reason we give that 10% back to the church is, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to do what I'm calling on you to do. I couldn't look myself in the eye or in the mirror. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> if if I called on you to be generous to support this ministry, if I didn't believe in it enough to support it in the same way. So that's why we do that. But then we give around another 5% of our income away to support different mission organisations and people uh, outside the parish. And it is really, really hard to work out who we should support. We, we pray for about 50. We financially support with any serious level of support about 3. And that's because we've decided rather than give a dollar to to hundreds of different things we're going to pick 3 that we're going to really seriously financially support. That's how we try to put this into practice and it's up to you and every individual and every family to work out something similar depending on your circumstances. You may be able to support a lot more gospel work than us. If you earn a lot more then you should be able to support a lot more. If you earn a lot less, you'll have to work out what you do in your circumstances. As I say, I do not share that example to shame you, and I do it carefully, only so that you have an example of what it looks like in practice. There's a third area of giving that this passage also touches upon, and that is to the poor, and especially to poor Christian brothers and sisters. I think in the New Testament, there is an expectation for generosity from us who have received so much just in our day-to-day life to be generous with what we have sometimes we can sort of think yeah well I've set aside this much for church I've given this much to CMS or to whatever it is we're supporting now the rest is mine the New Testament doesn't look on it that way it says no no it's all God's so yeah you set aside that but now we have the opportunity just to be generous with everything we have. So when we see Christian brothers and sisters in need, we help. I love the way Ephesians four twenty-eight captures this. Look at the last verse on your outline. It says, the thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Now that is a word to thieves. So if you are a thief here tonight, take that on board. But I think more than that, it actually shows us why we work. See, one of the reasons we work is to provide for our needs and our own family's needs. That's important. But he says, no, 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 it's not just to meet your own needs that you work hard. And it's certainly not just to buy more of what we want that we work hard. It's so that we can be generous. It's so that when someone comes to us in need, we can help. Most of us through our work have more than we need. There is very little genuine poverty in Australia when compared to the rest of the world. Most of us even after and most of us here even after setting aside a generous proportion to support our own church and a generous proportion to support gospel work around the world have far more than we need still. Last night we give generously, but it didn't stop me taking the family out last night for dumplings in Hurstville. Did we need to go out for dumplings? We could have had bread and butter. We have far more than we need. The question is, to what extent are we then generous with our excess? It's amazing how easy, easily, we buy the lie of consumerism, isn't it? I spoke about this last year when we talked about greed. I've got a house. I really need a bigger house. I've got a TV so now I need one that doesn't leave any space on my wall when I affix it. I've got a car but now I need one with eight cylinders. We've had a trip to the Gold Coast, wouldn't it be nice now to go to Europe? None of those things are wrong in the sense that if you come and talk to me I'll point you to a Bible verse and rebuke you for sin. But We always have to ask Is this consumerism the best use of our excess? That's the question. Let those who have ears to hear, hear. Next week in chapter 9, we're really going to be pushed to think about our attitudes in giving. And in particular, what does it mean to be cheerfully generous? Not just give out of obligation, but give cheerfully like the Macedonians. And in what sense do we reap what we sow? But as we finish this week, I want to go back and look at the key verse of this chapter. Look with me at verse 9. For you know, and I pray you do, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. More than anything, it is knowing the generosity of Christ that will create a generous spirit within us. Let's pray.